this evening in uh, Haggai chapter 2. I want to talk to you about the glory of, uh, of God, the glory of the Lord. There are, um, well, there's a lot that the Bible has to say about the glory of the Lord and, and uh, a lot of instances where the glory of the Lord appeared and produced something on behalf of his people. And uh, let me apologize up front. I'm going to go through a ton of scriptures tonight. Now, I've got them all written out on, uh, on notes so I can just go quickly. But um, um, if you're going to try to keep up with where we're going, uh, you may have a difficulty. So let me apologize up front for the writer's cramp that you'll have for your notes or whatever the case might be. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Let me stop here long enough to make a comment. The desire of all nations coming. The Bible says, Paul talked about in the New Testament, that uh, the earth is groaning. It's going through some kind of agonizing condition. Because God did not create the world to be under the control of Satan. He did not create the earth for it to be ruled by sin and death. And so the Bible talks about the earth groaning and travailing until the manifestation of the sons of God. What he's talking about specifically there is the earth is waiting for Jesus to come back and us to be transfigured, receive our redeemed bodies, and the plan of God being fulfilled. So where it talks about in verse 7 of Haggai 2, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. He's not talking about destruction. He's talking about uh, the rapture. He's talking about Jesus coming back and fulfilling the plan of God. I'll shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, whatever you think that means, he attached silver and gold to the glory. There are thousands of different ideas and suggestions and teachings and preachings that you'll hear out there on this subject. But whatever you think it means, he attached it to the glory of God. He's talking about a last day work of the Holy Ghost, a last day work in the church, and he attached silver and gold to it. The glory of this latter house, verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, as I said, we're going to start going through some scriptures, starting with the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16, and we're going to look at a lot of things that the Bible has to say about the glory of God. The Bible tells us to believe for the glory of God. The Bible tells us to pray for it, pray for the move of the Holy Ghost that brings forth the last day glory of God on the earth or the manifestation of the glory of God here on the earth. But I don't think a lot of us really know what we are praying for. As long as the glory of the Lord is an undefined term, then we can't really be on the same page in our prayers together for it to, uh, to manifest. Exodus chapter 16, verse 10 and it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Notice how many times the Bible talks about a cloud. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Turn with me now over to Exodus chapter 19, I believe it is. No, it's Exodus chapter 29. Beginning in verse, 22, verse 42, Exodus 29, verse 42, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my 
glory. Next one is Exodus chapter 30. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 40. I see the numbers, it's just not coming out of my mouth yet. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the, temp- the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's going to be a recurring thing that you see throughout this too when it talks about the glory of God filling the house or filling the place of worship. Leviticus chapter uh, 9, verse 4, it says, Also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil. For today the Lord will appear unto you. And they brought that which Moses commanded before the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that you should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Uh, Let's see, I think there's something else I want here in this chapter. Yeah, verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. The next one that we'll go to is in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10. This is after they've uh, rejected the, um, uh, well, they sent 12 spies into Israel, the promised land, came back, 10 of them said we couldn't do it, 2 of them said we could. The people joined in with the majority report, which is almost always wrong. But all the congregation, Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And that's when God says, stand back, Moses, and I'll do away with them and start over with you. And he talks him out of it, talks God out of it. Next one is Numbers chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. It says, And Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Skip down with me to verse... uh, where was it? Verse 42. Numbers chapter 16, verse 42. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Next is going to be Numbers chapter 20. Verse 6, And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Next we'll go to 1 Kings chapter 8. Beginning in verse 10 it said, And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. There's the cloud again. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. 
Next will be 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, and it talks about all the musicians and the, the instruments and music and so forth. Verse 13, and it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments and music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with the cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped. And praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Next we'll go to Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain or two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Look with me next to Isaiah chapter 35. Verse 1, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Now this is talking about uh, the flowering of um, uh, the desert places in Israel, which is a type of what God will do with the church. The Old Testament type, is, it certainly belonged to Israel. It certainly was a natural thing that God had promised. But it also talks about the flourishing, or it speaks to the flourishing of the church in the New Testament under the New Covenant. So it says again in verse 1, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Next is Isaiah 58. Verse 8, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall speed forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy re-reward. You can say it either re-reward, or it can mean rearward. I think the, the uh, inference is that God will put a defense at your back. The next one that we'll look at. Is Isaiah chapter six no fifty nine Isaiah chapter fifty nine verse nineteen it says so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west 
and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now, there's two ways you can read that. You can read the, uh, in the, the, without punctuation. You have to decide for yourself which one is speaking to. Because it can either be saying that the enemy's coming in with his attacks like a flood. He's flooding us with attacks. Or you can also read it as when the enemy comes in, God floods, uh, floods in, his, uh, in our defense to raise up a standard against his attack. So either one you want, God's on our side with the glory of the Lord. Amen? Next one is uh, Isaiah chapter 60. In verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 23. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, as the glory which I saw by the river of Chebar, and I fell on my face. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and spake with me and said unto me, Go shut thyself within thy house. A lot of people get concerned about the power of God, the presence of God, where people fall over. Look in this case that God set him up. He pulled Ezekiel off of his face and set him up. If that starts happening in our services, then I think we were on, uh, would certainly realize that, uh, well, it'd just be a good thing, huh? How do you describe it other, other than that? Ezekiel chapter um, 1, verse 28. This is the thing that Ezekiel said in chapter 3 what he referenced chapter 3 to something that had happened before. Ezekiel 1 verse 28, As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard the voice of one that spake. Ezekiel chapter 8. Verse 4, and behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. He's still referencing some of the things that happened from before. But each time it's the glory of the Lord that gets his attention that God speaks to him out of. Ezekiel chapter 10, then verse 4, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Next is Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. And it said, Behold, the glory of the Lord, the glory of the God of Israel, came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell upon my face. Verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house, by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Next is Ezekiel chapter 44, I believe. Verse 4, 
Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell upon my face. Notice how many times the people can't stand, whoever has been referred or referenced here. The people are not able to stand because of the glory of the Lord. Matthew chapter 17, and after six days, Jesus, verse 1, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up to a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Uh, Luke's account says that they entered into the cloud. Here it just says a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. We know this one from the Christmas story, the Christmas account. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Notice how it talks about shining. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he said, this is Stephen's speech in his defense. Verse 2, and he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharon. And said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into a land which I will show thee. Then the rest of the, most of the rest of the chapter is his uh, account of God's work through Abraham and, and giving him the covenant that he did, but then fulfilling the covenant through the work of Jesus on the cross. So in Acts chapter 7, further down into the chapter, I think it's verse 50, 57, I'm sorry, 54. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. This is the stoning of Stephen that takes place here. But notice I think we sanitize things so much, in our thinking at least. Notice it says, they gnashed on him with their teeth. They're trying to bite chunks out of the guy's flesh. Now maybe it's just me, but how mad does somebody have to get at somebody else for them to dig, try to dig their teeth into their flesh? I mean, that's just nuts. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost. Now we know he's already filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. This is talking about God's defense when people come against you. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And ran upon him with one accord. These people have gone crazy. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, there are so many accounts 
in the, in the scriptures, uh, well, I'm sorry, not in the scriptures. There are so many historical accounts of these um, uh, heroes of faith of the, primarily the first generation of the church that, um, that when they were killed, when they were going about the, the process, the Romans were going about the process of putting them to death, and some of it was just, just ridiculous. Uh, Luke, for example, was, uh, church history tells us that Luke was skinned alive. And he sang the whole time they were skinning him. Other times people were burned at the stake and the fire would have no power over their bodies, but there would be a display of God's power upon them in such a way that everybody saw that this was not a normal occurrence. Here it says Stephen fell asleep. I know a lot of people are trying to spiritualize that and say, well, that's just the, the King James way of, uh, King James English way of saying that he died. But folks, if you look up the words, it says he fell asleep. He went to sleep in the middle of the, the agony that they were trying to bring against him. And that brings us to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went up into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And, he, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. This is Jesus, of course, and he says, he, Paul heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now we know that um, uh, he was blinded for three days, and it tells us, Further in Acts chapter 9 about how Ananias saw the Lord in a vision while he was praying and, and God told him to go to where Saul was and lay hands on him to receive his sight and to be filled with the Holy Ghost. But in Acts chapter 22, here's Paul giving his account, first-hand account of what happened on that uh, Damascus road. Verse 6, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was coming nigh into Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. This is in the middle of the day. It's when the sun is at its highest point. So for there to be a great light, it's got to be something that's stronger and brighter than the sun. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go up into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which thou are appointed for thee to do. Notice verse 11. Here's what Paul said about that light. Uh, one, one reason I think this is important is because there are people in the, the um, well, in times past that have uh, promoted the doctrine that Paul's eye trouble, referring back to when Paul talked about the, the uh, thorn in the flesh, which was not sickness or disease. Paul clearly talked about it being persecution. But a lot of people say this is where Paul's eye trouble started, with the light. Verse 11, and when I could not see for the glory of that light, it was the light that blinded him. It was the light that blinded him. 
When I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Notice that Paul speaks by the Holy Ghost, writing to the church and, of course, writing to us, and identifies that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God. He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Revelation chapter 15, verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of the Lord, and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, and the city, talking about the new Jerusalem, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Did you notice how many times it talked about the glory being bright? Talked about the glory in uh, reference to a cloud. Talked about shining. It talked about um, filling the house. It talks about smoke in several places. I assume the smoke is the same thing as the cloud. I don't see any reason to identify it as a separate manifestation. But there may be things that the Bible is not cluing us in on completely one way or the other. And it talks about the glory of the Lord filling different places. And it tells when the glory of the Lord filled the house, filled the temple or the tabernacle or whatever. It says the priest couldn't stand to minister. In one case it was Moses, other cases it was the other priest, the high priest, that were operating as uh, descendants of Levi. But it talks about that it filled the place, literally meaning to take up space. To take up space. We think of God, and certainly God is a spirit. The Bible says God said of himself that he was a spirit. And so we understand that spirit beings don't have a physical form like we do. Doesn't mean they don't have a form. It's just not a physical form. And remember, it's the physical form of man that gives him authority here on the earth. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over all the works of our hands. Well, you lose your dominion when you lose your body. When you lose your body, you got to leave the earth. So there's no further dominion here for the one that has expired or passed on. So spirit beings can't have physical bodies. Now, Jesus is the exception. He has his redeemed body, and he'll have the same redeemed body as we will have when he comes back. We shall see him like he is. For we are in him. But again and again it talks about 
filling the house or filling the tabernacle. How does a spirit being without a physical body fill the house? How does a spirit being take up physical space? We think of spirit beings as kind of like air. It's there, but you can't see it. Just like we can't see over into the spirit realm unless the Holy Ghost manifests himself in a special way. But that doesn't mean it's not real. We take for granted that the air that we can't see is here or else we wouldn't be able to survive. Well, spiritual things are just as real as physical things. But the glory of the Lord is talked about time and time and time again. Not exclusively, but time and time again. It's talked about as occupying space. So, folks, there has to be a heavenly materiality to spiritual things. Has to be. I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 33. Um, let's start in verse 12 to get the context of what he's saying. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. And thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know thee, that I might found grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Moses is getting in God's face about this. He's saying, you've said big things about me. You've said that you talk with me face to face. That's a special relationship that Moses had with God that nobody else on the face of the earth at that, day, at that time could have. He is the single head of the people of Israel, the people of God. And he says, you keep saying that nobody will stand before me. You keep saying that I've found grace in your sight. But you haven't told me who's going to go with me. He's aware long after all the ten plagues in Egypt, long after the parting of the Red Sea, Long after all of those things, long after the, the experiences that he had with God to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, where he was on a mountain that everybody else looked at and it was covered with blackness and lightnings and smoke and fire and everything else, so much so that the people of Israel just looked up and said, there's no way anybody could live, live through that. That must have been a sight. So they said, there's no way anybody can live through that, so we're on our own, and that's when they got Aaron to make the golden calf. And rebelled against God. Do you remember the story? So Moses is saying, I need to know who you're going to send with me. Why that's important to him, I don't know. I mean, it's working so far. Everything that he's attempting is working out by the hand of God. God answers him and says, verse 14, my presence shall go up with thee and I will give thee rest. And Moses answered and he said, if your presence doesn't go with me, then don't take us anywhere else. Carry us not up hence. In other words, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. Maybe even stronger than that, I won't go. For wherein, if your presence go not with me, carry us not up. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. I don't know what it is, but 
here lately, I'm gaining such a, a, a greater appreciation for the Old Testament people. Moses talked with God face to face. He appeared in the, in the cloud of glory over and over and over again for his benefit and also to protect him. It talks about, we read probably four or five different places, different scriptures of where the people came out against them and the glory of the Lord stood in the doorway of the tabernacle. I'm sure that presence of God, that manifestation of God's presence was designed to let the people know that wanted to hurt Moses, to let them know that's not really a smart move on your part. But after all of those things, after all of those times that the glory of the Lord has protected him, Moses is still focused on the fact that he has to have somebody that's with him all the time. We've got the Holy Ghost with us all the time. Moses would probably look at our day and compare it to the things that are written about him and say, well, of course I did that. But you know about the presence of God in you more than I ever did. Why aren't you doing something? He never knew God inside of him. And maybe that in itself was the reason why he was looking for a greater presence of somebody being with him. So he says, if we found grace in your sight, since we're your covenant people, in other words, separated from all the other people on the earth, we're going to have to have your presence to go. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 17, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, Moses said to the Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Hadn't he seen it? Doesn't he have experience with that already? He's got a lot of experience with that. But something in Moses' thinking, something in his understanding, and maybe this came just through the, the, the reality of the times, numerous times that he spoke with God face to face. So I don't think I finished my thought a minute ago. So it amazes me. I'm, I'm going through a period of time I'm in the middle of a period of time right now where I see the boldness of some of these Old Testament prophets that just knew God on them, never knew God in them. And look at the faith and the confidence that they put in the, in the not just the impossible things, not just the miraculous things, but the incredibly miraculous things that they expected God to do. Superseding laws of nature. Going against anything and everything. One of the places that we read, we didn't read the, the whole thing in context. But in, uh, in Exodus, earlier in the book of Exodus, it talks about the sons of Korah. Well, you, do you remember what happened with Korah and the people that were following him? Korah comes to a place where he says, Moses isn't anything special. God talks to Moses, he'd be able to talk to us too. And Moses falls on his face, not before God, but before them, and says, oh, please don't do this. You don't know what mistake you're making. Don't do this. But they've convinced themselves that they could talk to God just as easily as Moses could. It's a power struggle. It's a political move. Korah's trying to be the guy in charge, at least co-equal with, with Moses. And Moses says, you don't understand what you're doing. The place that I have with God, you shouldn't be envious of that. And you certainly shouldn't take it upon yourself to put yourself in that position. 
try to elevate yourself to that place with God. Well, the end result was that God talked to Moses, told Moses what to do. And Moses says, all right, we're going to meet here tomorrow. He told him to bring a sacrifice. He told him to bring some other things that would be signs unto them. So the next day, everybody shows up. And then Moses says, well, here's the deal. If you died a normal death, if you and all the people that are following you, and there were a, a, a large group of people that were on Korah's side of this issue. He said, if you died a normal death, if the power of God came down and wiped you guys out to die a normal death, people would make excuses and say, well, maybe that wasn't really God. Maybe that was just nature. Maybe that was an electrical storm that caused lightning to kill these people or whatever. He said, but if you die an unnatural, a miraculous death, then everybody would know that was God, right? Well, do you remember what the death was? The ground opened up and swallowed Korah and all of his people and all of his family and everybody that was following him. Only those people that were following Korah swallowed him up and then came back together on top of him. Now, the picture in my mind, and I don't know if this is accurate, I don't know if there's any way to identify it one way or another, but I, I can imagine all of a sudden there's a Grand Canyon, people fall down in the hole and then comes back together, which would be instant squish. Now, maybe that's not the way that it worked. I don't know. But it got everybody's attention. It caused them to understand. So here's the question that I have. Why does Moses think that he needs something else? Why does he come to the place where he says, again, I'm not criticizing. I'm glad for what he did. It brings us a greater understanding. But what's going on in Moses' mind to think that he needs something more than what's already defended him against the people time and time and time again? It elevated him. It, it made him the most famous person on the earth by God doing the ten plagues and then culminated in the, the parting of the Red Sea and then Pharaoh's army drowning in the ocean or in the sea. But Moses said, I need more. I need your presence. So then Moses said to the Lord, after God said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go up with you. And then Moses said, show me your glory. He, what's he looking for? Is he looking for something that he hadn't seen in the cloud? Is he looking for something that he hadn't seen when God came to his defense? Not just against Korah, but you remember also in Numbers chapter 14, the whole of the congregation wanted to stone him with stones. That's when the glory of the Lord appeared to protect him as well. God said, step back, Moses, I'll take care of these people and start over with you. Moses said, you can't do that, Lord. Everybody will say the only reason you brought them out of Egypt was to kill them in the wilderness. That wouldn't be right. I wonder if Moses ever regretted that decision. When he says, Lord, show me your glory, what's he looking for? And he said, I beseech thee, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Notice how God defines his glory. He defines it as his goodness, his name, 
His graciousness, which grace always has to do with redemption. Grace always, in every form and every time the word grace is used, it's always about something that belongs to us because of Jesus providing salvation and eternal redemption for us. So he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you, all my goodness. I'll proclaim my name before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show you the salvation that is yet to come. For for him yet to come, for us, we've realized it. And then the last one, he says, mercy. I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And he said, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. This is, of course, the type of Jesus. And thou shalt stand upon a rock. For us, it's the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that's the rock that he's building his church on. And the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. He said, there is a place by me. And thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass while my glory passes by. Now again, remember we just saw in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. So that's got to be glory. He said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. That's got to be part of the glory of God too. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Again, verse 22, it shall come to pass that while my glory passes by, my goodness, the name of God, the name of Jesus for us, grace and mercy, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Brother Hagin told a story of an experience that he had when he was um, on the sickbed. He hadn't been healed yet. It was sometime almost a year before he got saved. But, um, well, actually... That's not accurate. This had a direct uh, leading toward him being saved. Anyway, he was facing death. He was at the point of death. And and, uh, somehow or another, he said he knew that he was going. He knew he was slipping away. And so his little brother, Pat, was in the room. Brother Hagin said that they got to the place, especially when he was at his weakest points, where nobody would leave him in the room by himself. There had to be one family member there all the time to kind of look after him. And so he told his brother, told his younger brother, Pat, he said, Pat, go get mama. I'm dying. So Pat goes running into the other end of the house. Um, Brother Hagin's mom and he and and their, his brothers and sisters were all living there at uh, their grandmother's house. So the mother and the grandmother came running from the kitchen to the bedroom, the front bedroom where he was. And his mother outran his grandmother. And so she came to to the door. The door was open. But she got to the door and realized there was something else in the room. She said, I couldn't see you on the bed. I couldn't see anything. There was just a brightness coming from the room. She said, it caused me to stop to begin with. But then I tried to enter the room. And she said, something was there. I couldn't get in. She said, I literally bounced off of it. And when I bounced off of it, it the, the, whatever force was behind this thing, kind of overwhelmed her and so she kind of slid down by the the edge of the door well by this time granny has come running as fast as she can she doesn't hesitate she tries to run into the open door runs into this bright cloud that's filling the room and bounces back 
She made three runs at it. Each time back and further across the other room. And finally, the third time, she was overwhelmed, so she just kind of slid down into the floor. After about 10 minutes, Brother Hagin's mother said we could, the, the fog or the cloud or whatever this thing was, and she didn't know. And how would we know? I mean, here we are, born again, walking with God. Most of us have so little understanding of what the Bible talks about with the glory of God. How would we know? We have so little experience with it. I don't think that's the way God wants it. I know it's not the way God wants it, but it's the fact. So anyway, they wound up working their way into the room after about 10 minutes when the fog lifted. And they went to attend to him. And by then, during that time, those uh, maybe 10 minutes or whatever she identified as 10 minutes, he had left his body first to go down into the pit of hell. And then wound up getting saved on the way back. He said there was a voice that he heard that shook that place. Shook the, the foundations of hell. And it wasn't in English. It was something that was spoken. He, he always believed that it was Jesus that said it. And whatever this creature was that had a hold of his arm. Dropped his arm and he started going back to the earth. So it was instrumental. It was the direct um, cause of him giving his life to the Lord and being saved. Then he got healed some 16 months later or whatever. But it talks about, or they talked about, she talked about the same thing that the Bible refers to. She had no knowledge of what Scripture says. She didn't know the Bible. She was saved, but she never really studied the Word. But the glory of the Lord filled that room, and she couldn't get in. That sounds like what it talks about at Solomon's temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple and they couldn't stand to minister. When I first started working with Brother Hagen, the first uh, crusade that we went to was in uh, New Jersey. And we were in a, a rented hall and, um, and the place was packed out. It seated probably, I don't know, 2,000 people, maybe 2,500 people, something like that. And it was packed to the gills. The fire department was out there, and they were making sure that all the, the doors were opened and lanes were clear, aisles were clear, and that kind of stuff, because it was a, uh, a huge gathering for this, uh, this town. And uh, I'd heard Brother Hagen tell some stories I have been, uh, this was uh, the summer between my first and second year of Bible school. I'm just as green as can be. I don't know anything. I thought I knew some things. But looking back at it, I didn't know anything. And um, having seen Brother Hagen not on the road, but in uh, different services and some things on campus there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there were some things that I saw and some, some things that I witnessed that I wasn't convinced about yet. I'd like to say that I grabbed a hold of everything and just with an open heart, open arms, welcomed in everything that God was doing. But there was some stuff I didn't know about. I didn't understand people falling under the power of God. I didn't know if that was God or if it was them. Well, the, the service, first service of the crusade in New Jersey went well. 
And at the end of the, of, uh, the service, he's going to lay hands on the people, lay hands on the sick. The place was so packed, there really wasn't any room to put any lines to minister to people. So we're having to, to create room that's not there. And it turned out to be a mess. I mean, we did the best we could, but it was just a logistical nightmare. We had people, it, it was a, an ice skating rink that they put covering down on top of the ice. And so it was miserable. We were there for a couple of days, and it was miserable because that cold was come up from the floor and get in your bones, and it was just tough. And so anyway, we had, uh, we had people going down the outside of the seating area on both sides, almost lapping the whole building. And we're trying to get those people to Brother Hagin as fast as, as we can. Because Brother Hagin would tell people about what Jesus had, the fact that Jesus had appeared to him and put a healing anointing in his hands and, um, and identified that if the people believed in that anointing, that it would heal them. But that anointing wouldn't last forever. It didn't always last. It, it oftentimes did not last through the, the whole of the lines and the crowds that, that wanted to come and be ministered to. So we're trying to get to people as fast as we can. And there was a, there was a column, some kind of column off to the sides, as, uh, uh, on both sides, relative to the, the structure of the building and load-bearing pl- uh, stuff. And y- you know what I'm trying to say. And so Brother Hagin is trying to minister to as many people as he can, as quickly as he can, because the anointing is going to lift. It won't last forever. You couldn't stand it if it would last forever. So he starts running down the sides. Goes down one way, coming back another way. And so he gets to a certain place. I'm going with him. My job is to catch people that are being ministered to. Because there's a lot of times people are trying to um, say that nobody caught them, hurt themselves when they fell, and try to get money out of Sue for money and damages and stuff like that. If everybody was operating in the spirit, then the people that fall, they wouldn't get hurt. You couldn't get hurt because it was God, the power of God that, that t- topped you over, you know. But people are who they are. So anyway, long story short, shorter, um, we got to a place where I couldn't get away from Brother Hagin. I'm following him, trying to keep up with him, trying to, he's on one side of the people, I'm on the other side of the people. We're trying to get to as many people as we can, and we come to to one of the far corners where these columns are, these big, wide columns. And I couldn't get away from him. Well, he doesn't know who he's laying hands on. He doesn't know what's going on. He winds up brushing my forehead, thinking that I was somebody there that, that was getting prayed for or wanted to be prayed for or whatever. And the next thing I knew, a couple of minutes had gone by, and he's back up on the platform. And I'm, I'm wondering, how did I get here? What happened? Why am I not there? And that, that went a long way to convincing me. I, I think God had a hand in that to show me that it was real. They didn't do that in my Baptist church. So how would you know? See, folks, you only know what you've experienced. That's all you know. And so that had a, had a great deal to do with um, me being convinced. Maybe that's the easiest way to say it. 
There was another time that we were with um, Brother Hagen in Detroit. And um, large, large room, auditorium. And um, Brother Hagen's ministering along to people. Now, this, this time we had plenty of room. There's plenty of place to, to minister to people. And um, he's just minding his own business, preaching, teaching the word, and so forth. And when we started to lay hands on the people, when he started to lay hands on the people, we arranged them, got them going, and had a pretty good setup. You know, people could get to him pretty quickly, and he could get to them, and uh, no real difficulties. But Brother Hagin was down on the floor, platform a little bit higher than this, maybe three feet tall, something like that. And so uh, with uh, portable steps on the sides. So Brother Hagin is ministering along. He's laying hands on folks. And all of a sudden, he stops, and he says, the glory's here. He said, I can see it as a cloud hanging above your heads. And he stopped and he said, let's just worship the Lord. He said, if you worship the Lord, it gets thicker and stronger. So let's just worship the Lord. Well, people are people. So you got a lot of people that are, that are genuinely worshiping the Lord and, and uh, trying to contribute, but you got other people that are looking around trying to see the show. So that went on for a few minutes and Brother Hagen, next thing I knew, I looked around Brother Hagin had come back up on the steps, come back on the platform, taking the steps to get back on the platform. And he just stood there. He was worshiping the Lord. The singers that we had with us were um, leading the congregation to worship the Lord a little bit more. Real quiet, beautiful presence of God. It wasn't, wasn't wild, wasn't crazy, wasn't, you know, a show. But Brother Hagin said, now it's getting stronger. And from the platform, there were hundreds of people standing in line waiting to be ministered to. He just waved his hand. And everybody that's on the floor went down like a sack of salt. I'm on the floor. I tried to get Brother Hagin to let me know, clue me in next time something like this is going to happen. But the glory of the Lord just came into that place. And everybody in the healing lines, when I say everybody on the floor, I don't mean people in the seats. They're still standing up by their seats. But the people that came to be ministered to, God knew who it was was for and who it should benefit. Every person in the line, several hundred people, went down almost instantly. So here's my question. Is the glory of the Lord just Old Testament? When God showed himself in a variety of ways in all of the miracles that he did, is that over? Was that just Old Testament stuff? Apparently God wanted the people to know about his glory. He wanted them to know about the cloud because he wasn't shy about showing it to them. He wasn't shy about revealing himself. He's not doing things in secret. So that only Moses knows. He's doing things out in front of everybody. Was that desire changed on God's part? My Bible says God never changes. Would God want the children of Israel under the old covenant to know him better? To be more acquainted with the display of his power and the manifestation of his presence than he would his children? That wouldn't make sense, would it? 
Well, what about us? There's a lot more scriptures that we could have pulled up that talk about the glory of the Lord. Most of them in the Old Testament, granted. But we didn't even use two-thirds of the scriptures of the Old Testament that talk about the glory of the Lord. But I wanted to give you enough of an exposure to what the Bible says about the glory of the Lord and the reference to the glory of the Lord specifically to let you know that it was not just an every now and then thing. On the day of Pentecost when the uh, 120 were filled with the Holy Ghost, they spill out into the streets and Peter preaches. It's at the time of the feast, so people are there in Jerusalem from all quarters. God knew the right time to do things so that people would be exposed to it and take it back home with them wherever they went, at least the reports of it. So Peter starts preaching, and he preaches from Joel chapter 2. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. If you go to Joel chapter 2, you'll find out that the rest of the things that are spoken of, or uh, at least some of the things that are spoken of, is God says in the last days, I'll do all these things. And one of the things he says is Joel chapter 2, I think it's verse 30. But God said, and I will do signs and wonders in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Now, in times past, there have been certain people throughout the history of the church, in the church world, I mean, that have said that these things were referencing wars, bombs, explosions, and so forth. But God can't be doing it. If that's what it is, God can't be the one doing it. Jesus said, I came to bring life, not death. So these forces, these signs and wonders that he talks about, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, can't be destructive because he's doing them. They can't be destructive. So what is it that God has planned for the last days? We started off in Haggai chapter 2 where it says the glory of the latter house, being the church, the end times of the church, the last days of the church, shall be greater than the former. Now there's a lot of different ways you can read that. There's a lot of things you can compare it to. The former would have to refer, if it's talking to Old Testament, the people of God, it would have to refer to Solomon's temple. There was a second temple that was constructed after the first one was destroyed. It was in Nehemiah's day. He, Nehemiah had a lot to do with that. Some of the people that saw the dedication of Solomon's temple were still alive for the dedication of Hezekiah, um, uh, not Hezekiah, Nehemiah's work to make the second temple. It's just called the second temple. There were some people that saw the dedication of Solomon's temple and also saw the dedication of the second temple. And they cried They cried because they said the second temple was nothing compared to Solomon's temple. They're not talking about the overlay with gold and stuff. They're talking about the presence of God. Solomon's temple was such that when the people began to praise and worship God, the glory of the Lord filled the house and the priest couldn't stand to minister. There's no reference to anything like that, not even anything close 
with the dedication of the second temple. It just tells us they, they reconstructed the temple and that was it. Goes into no detail whatsoever. There was no obvious presence of God in any form whatsoever. At least not in the same category as Solomon's temple. The third temple was Herod's temple. That was the one that the disciples tried to show Jesus and said, isn't this great? Herod put a lot of money into this thing as a political move. Jesus wasn't impressed at all. Jesus had no appreciation for Herod's temple in and of itself. To the degree that it was the place where they were supposed to come and worship God, he had respect unto that. But the motive behind it was wrong. And so he, he said that not one stone would be left upon another. The reason that, that that was significant is because Herod, as a political move, trying to get the Jews on his side, put gold in the mortar between the stones. So when the temple was destroyed, when Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Romans literally took it apart, dismantled it, so they could get to the gold in the mortar. Just like Jesus said. So if it's talking about the glory of the latter house being greater than the former, if it's talking about the former, then it has to be talking about Solomon's temple. I don't believe it is. I don't believe that's the reference he's making. But if that's the point, the the position somebody wants to take, it still means that it's going to have to be greater than the, the dedication of Solomon's temple. The glory surrounding that where the priest couldn't stand to minister because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. If that's all it is, I'm good with that. It can't be a reference to the second temple. It can't be a reference to Herod's temple. So it's either a reference to Solomon's temple or it's a reference to the early days of the church. That's the only option. Well, we know what we'd be talking about if it was Solomon's temple. The glory of the Lord on the church in the last days would be greater than the glory of the Lord in Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. We could live with that. But I think it even means more. I think it means there'll be a greater manifestation of God's power. A greater demonstration of God's power. A greater manifestation of his presence than the early church had. Well, the early church events and happenings are recorded in the book of Acts. So the two options... The glory of the latter house will be greater than of the former. Is either greater glory than Solomon's temple had at the dedication when the temple was filled with the glory of the Lord, or it's a greater operation of the power and the presence of God than the book of Acts tells us about the beginning of the, of the church. I think that's what it is that's being spoken of. And I can sure live with that. So what are we to do? James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. So the the subject that's being talked about that James is referring to by the Holy Ghost is Jesus coming back for the church. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth and has long patience for it. He waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. So if we're talking about the glory of the Lord, if we're talking about God's plan for his power and his presence at the end of the days, end of this church age, 
It says he's waiting for the, pre- the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting for the last day harvest. God wants to get as many people in his family as he possibly can. But the thing that's going to bring about that harvest, the thing that's going to bring about that precious fruit of the earth, precious fruit has to mean people. People's all that God's ever cared about. I don't think God can impress himself with monetary things. People's what he cares about. So if Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, which he hadn't come yet, so we know he is, and he has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. That's telling us, therefore, that the early and the latter rain, which is always spoken of as a move of the Holy Ghost, is the thing that's going to bring about the precious fruit of the earth. Not church programs, not church buildings, but literally a move of the Holy Ghost. God has planned a move, an end-time move, end-of-church-age move of the Holy Ghost to bring in the precious fruit of the earth so Jesus can come. Well, that has to fit with the glory of the latter house being greater than of the former. He's talking about there'll be a greater move to sweep people into the kingdom of God in the last days of the church than there were in the early days of the church. And if you go back to the book of Acts, you'll find out that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached about Jesus being crucified, and this is the manifestation of the Holy Ghost, and speaking in tongues is what was prophesied by Joel, and so forth. There were 5,000 people that got saved that day. Then in Acts chapter 3, where it talks about the man being healed at the beautiful gate of the temple, the crippled man, 3,000 people got saved that day. I may have those numbers reversed. Maybe it was 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 Acts chapter 3. But anyway, the Bible tells us in the first three chapters of the book of Acts, the church is 8,000 plus the 120 that were filled with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. And they haven't even gotten started yet. They don't even know who they're supposed to preach to yet. They don't know anything about God's plan for the Gentiles. But if we can use this terminology, the precious fruit of the early days of the church God reached 8,100 plus people. I could live with that now. Couldn't you? If God's telling us the truth, he's telling us that there'll be a greater move of God to bring people into the, the kingdom of heaven, the family of God, than we saw numbered in Acts chapter 2 and 3. Almost sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? But it was spoken by the God that cannot lie. So what are we to do? Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1 says, Ask ye of the Lord reign in the time of the latter reign. See, if we understand what the, the, uh, the context of the early and the latter reign is, if we understand God's plan for the end time move of the Holy Ghost to sweep multitudes of people into his family, then that brings us to a greater understanding and a greater appreciation, I think, for praying for the rain. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Here's what he'll do if we ask. He will make bright clouds. Well, we know that has a reference then to the glory of God, doesn't it? He'll make bright clouds. He's talking about a demonstration of his power and a manifestation of his presence.
He'll make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Grass in the field has got to be a reference to the precious fruit of the earth. Now remember what God said in Joel that he would do in the last days. He would perform signs with blood and fire and pillars of smoke. I think we need to start believing God to show up. I believe we need to start believing God to manifest himself. Jesus told Martha, no, no, it was Mary, at Lazarus' tomb. He told her if she would believe that she would see the glory of the Lord. Well, God would be a respecter of persons if he was going to do something for her and won't do the same thing for us. And all we have to do is ask. It's all the Bible tells us to do. Ask of the Lord. Rain in the time of the latter rain. Any question that this is the time for it? Not in my mind. We're too close to the end to play church. It's time we got the plan of God and co cooperated with the Holy Ghost. The more we talk about the glory of the Lord, the more faith we'll have to, to, uh, to see it, to receive it. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And that's been my purpose for bringing you up tonight. This won't be the only time we talk about it. You know what I'm really looking for? I'm really looking for the people of God to believe to see his glory. Moses asked. God gave him what he could. Why shouldn't we have the same attitude? I like the fact that Moses talked to God and said, I won't go unless you go. I like that. Even though he's already gone, even though he's already seen the power of God in action, even though he's seen enemies destroyed by the power of God when they took the Ark of the Covenant out in front of the, the army. Why shouldn't we ask for stuff like that? We've got a better scriptural foundation for expecting it in our day than Moses had for it in his day. Why shouldn't we ask? Why shouldn't we expect to see the power of God demonstrated and the presence of God manifested? Why shouldn't we? Folks, I believe with all my heart that we should. And we've done to some degree... But I believe there's a lot of room for growth in this area. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing your plan and your purpose for the last days. You told us to ask you for rain. You told us to ask you for that which signifies the moving of the Holy Ghost. You said if we would ask you, Father, that you'd make bright clouds. In other words, you would display your power and you'd manifest your presence just like the glory cloud in the old days. 
So we ask you, Father, we ask you for the rain. We ask you that the glory of the Lord would be even as you spoke in your word, that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Father, I want to see those signs and wonders that you promised for the last days. Signs of blood and of fire and pillars of smoke. I don't know what they are. I don't know what to expect. But I know you said we'd have them. So in Jesus' name, Father, make your word good. Teach us. Reveal unto us that which we don't know. Show us that which we've not seen. In the precious and holy name of Jesus. Make it so, Lord. Make it so. Lord, our request is the same as Moses. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I'm sorry for going so long. But sometimes I think it's good for us to do it. Like David said to his brothers, is there not a cause? Say this after me. I believe that we shall see the glory of God. Signs and wonders. Signs of blood and fire and pillars of smoke. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being part of us.